So, uh, continuing what we were thinking about before, we're going to consider more some about words and language. As I said, when you spend time in a different country, regularly speaking a different country, a different language, it gives you a different perspective. You start to understand how English is special, how English is different. And it's something we don't normally do. We don't normally consider how we communicate. But if you think of a word like go, a verb like go, an action like go, all the different ways that we use the verb go to communicate every possible idea is this, this list here, go, goes, went, etc. And you can see that when you come to the bottom there, that's some kind of complex ideas we're talking about. But still, the beautiful thing about English is that most of the structure there is the same for every verb. When you think about has or have gone, yeah, has or have had, has or have seen, for every other verb, we use the same construction. So the only part which is unique is just those five words. Go, goes, went, gone, going. And even then, going, that's basically the same for every verb, just ing. This is wonderful. If you compare this to, for example, Portuguese, the verb equivalent to go, that's... That is the different conjugations of the verb to go in Portuguese. And it's not because Portuguese is crazy. That's, that's really standard. Most languages, when you want to communicate a complicated idea, you need to know a very specific verb. A very specific conjugation is what we call it, the way we make the verb different. But in English, it's really simple this aspect of our language, this aspect of grammar, so we can start communicating really quickly. If somebody's learning English, they can pick up the basics really soon, and then it doesn't take so long for them to understand the structure to communicate complicated ideas. Um, that's not to say that English is simple, by any means. I always say to my students, there are two real challenges with English. The first... It's almost impossible in English for words to have one meaning. It's so rare. Even if you look around the room, if you think of a very simple word like chair, it seems like such a basic word. There should only be one meaning, the place where you sit. But actually, if you're talking about somebody who's leading a meeting, then you mean the person who's sitting in the chair. He is the chair of the meeting, or he is chairing the meeting. It's quite strange. So if I say, oh, I'm sorry, you need to ask the chair, I either mean you need to talk to my manager or you need to act like a crazy person. Hello, could you, uh, could you help me with my, my query? Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, if I say, I think, I think they should give him the chair, either I mean he deserves a really nice present or he deserves something quite different. And I would like to point out, no portillos were hurt in the making of this slideshow. <laughs> um, and quite a few words in English even have two meanings, which are the exact opposite of each other, which is wonderful. It's totally crazy. So we can have a sentence like this. Nobody knows why the alarm suddenly went off. Did it start or did it stop? We have no idea. It went off. It started. 
or it stopped. And he's, he confirmed that the coat was inflammable, so it was very, very safe or extremely dangerous. <laughs> we have no idea. Or I was responsible for the project's oversight. So it's because of me the project is perfect, or it's because of me there's the fault in the project. We have these strange words in English. And not only that, some words have different meanings, specific meanings, depending on the circumstance or the person using them. For example, all of these words can be represented by one word. And you look at those, there's some really seriously different words there. Absolutely, mostly, more or less, not. All of those words can be represented by the same word. Can anybody guess what that is? Anybody? Anybody? I'll give you a clue. If you look on American grammar forums, there are long discussions about what on earth the British mean when we use the word quite. (laughs) And it's quite understandable because it's quite difficult, uh, sometimes quite impossible. It's a word which could mean almost anything, and yet when we use it, you know what I mean. You know exactly what I mean. It's an interesting thing with language, but if you imagine how difficult it is to communicate in one language when we have words like this, the challenge when it comes to translation can be huge. I've done quite a bit of work in translation in Brazil, and it's an interesting process because uh, often there will be the case of you find the word, but words are never simple. Even a word like win, if you look up win in a thesaurus, you have all these different meanings which are the same as win, and yet they are not the same. (laughs) They are all different. If I say we beat them, it doesn't really suggest the same thing as we prevailed, we overcame, or even just we came first. These all have different meanings in subtle ways, which we instinctively understand. But still, it's a huge challenge in translation to understand what the person writing really meant when they said win. Did they mean they overcame, or did they mean they edged it? (laughs) We have all these possibilities. So, uh, considering that the songs we translated today, we chose two different songs. First of all, Uh, come with the line, every tongue will confess. And it's one of those great examples where the translation, toda lingua confessará, has exactly the same meaning in the sense that tongue has two meanings in both languages. Tongue is the physical part of your body and the language. So when we say every tongue will confess, we're saying every individual every individual person with their body, and we're talking about nations. Every language will come together and confess. And in Portuguese, you have the same double meaning. You're saying exactly the same thing. Whereas in the second song, we have the line, me faz um milagre, which we translated as perform a miracle for me, which is probably the, the primary meaning. But there's the second meaning in Portuguese, to make me your miracle. The literal translation would be, make me your miracle, make me a miracle, of course, when we're talking about doing or performing a miracle in English. 
We can't say, please God, make me a miracle. Make this for me. So we lose the double meaning. And that's one of the biggest parts of translation is selecting the most important meaning. Selecting the part which we really want to keep in the translation. The best way to do it, in my experience, is if you can sit with somebody so you can discuss, well, when you say win, do you mean this? Do you mean this? So it's not a case that words and language are ever black and white. They are, in fact, always so much more complicated. So where does this leave us when we're considering the Bible translation? If we cannot sit with the person who wrote it. It can be a real challenge. Um, But when we study translation, when we start to look into the possible meanings of a word, it's quite similar to studying Bible history. When you understand the context, the situation, when something was written, it gives you a deeper level of appreciation and understanding. And more importantly... It gives you an extra opportunity for the spirit, who may not be sitting with you, but is with you, to give you a new insight, to give you a new meaning. And similarly, when we understand the process of translation, of selecting the best word for a particular meaning, it's an opportunity for God to inspire us, to help us understand on a deeper level what he's saying. One example which I've used before, I've talked about before, is the word father. Many of you will know. I don't really like the word father. (laughs) It's such a distant word for me. I think for most people of my generation and younger. I don't know if I ever called my male parent father. If I did, I was probably being sarcastic. (laughs) Father, please would you help me? It's not a kind of word which I would ever use with any intimacy, any closeness. And as many of you know, the translation of Father in in Aramaic, in the language Jesus was speaking, is Abba. And Abba doesn't really mean Father. Of course, it's a different language, so there's no black and white correct, incorrect answer. Abba means a term of respect, a term of honor, and it means an incredibly close, intimate, personal word, the kind of word that a young child would use talking to their male parent. And today, that word, in that sense of the meaning, is definitely not father. Much much more, for me, the appropriate word would be dad. When I talk to my dad, that's, as an adult, the term of respect, but it's still the intimacy, the closeness. And I really think that when the Bible was being written, they wanted us to understand the intimacy. Because again, as we, as most of you know, often when Jesus is praying, the translation includes Father in our Bible and also Abba. Because in the Greek Bible, it included the Greek word for Father and it included still the original Aramaic Abba. It's like the, the writer was inspired to include the extra information because they couldn't sit with us when we read it, but they wanted us to understand the shocking thing. Jesus isn't just talking to his father. 
He's talking to his blood relative he's so close to, so intimately connected to. He really wanted us to know that we should be quite scandalous in approaching God in an absolutely intimate, familiar way. We don't need to keep a distance. We don't need to stay away with a word like Father, which carries so much weight. He says, call me Dad. Come to me. Call me the name in your heart which gives you that connection. Because, of course, if you say Father, it's not wrong as long as you fill the word with the same feeling of intimacy. It doesn't really matter if you call him Jeff, as long as the word for you carries all of those meanings. Words at the end of the day are like containers for meaning. They are boxes to put ideas in, to help us understand. Um, So, considering that, of course, the famous phrase, a rose would smell as sweet by any other name, it's true that it doesn't make a difference that it's called a rose rather than a splonky tweeber. If it was called a splonky tweeber, it would still be a lovely gift. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't change what the object is. But we need the world to understand what God is. We need the world to recognize when we talk about our father, we don't mean some distant figure. We mean somebody who's in our life, who we can feel the presence comforting us. Really, I'd like to leave you with a challenge. I always think if there's not a challenge, you're doing something wrong. I would like you to go away and to define a word for me. I don't want you to invent a word like splonky twee, but that's my word. But I want you to define the word Christian. Because you already are defining the the word every day when you leave your house. Every act, every action, you are telling the world, this is what a Christian is. This is what it means to be a Christian. So what is that? What ideas do people have when they see millions of conflicting ideas about what a Christian is? We need to help them understand And the Bible tells us that love is the key. They will recognize the difference in us because of love. So, if you don't rise to the challenge, if we don't rise to the challenge, there are millions of people out there who will go out with the label Christian and will define something which is entirely the opposite. There are millions of people every day who will present themselves as Christians and will present the world as the definition. Nothing but hate. Nothing but separation and selfishness and isolation. And we need to be loud in our definitions. We need to speak up in our actions. Because actions speak louder than words. At the end of the day, there's no word which captures the love that God has shown to us. We cannot summon up an idea to get all of that information within it. There's no word. But when we hear Jesus telling us our commandment, the meaning of our lives is to love 
another, love the world the same way that he loved us. We need to recognize the size of that word love. How much has Jesus loved us? How infinitely has he loved us? And what can we do in our lives to represent that, to define Christian, to define Christ-like with a connection to the real meaning of the word love as we understand it through his actions? So that's our challenge in our lives and in this coming week, to go out there and to define Christian by presenting love. Let's pray. Dad, we know that your ideal of love is so far above us that it will be the goal for the rest of our lives. We will never get there. But every day with your spirit, with your strength, we can move closer. We know how important it is not to talk about love, but to do love, to act out love. Help us. May we find those opportunities to present the real meaning of love, to draw people to Christ. May we recognize the opportunities and accept them willingly. Really, there's no great challenge for us. You're not asking us to to risk our lives or to give our physical lives in the way that Christ truly loved us. More often than not, it's just a case of reaching out to another person who desperately needs us and desperately needs you. So help us to do that, Dad. Help us to relate more and more with you every day, to recognize how wonderful you are and how close you are, and to move ever closer to the true meaning of love as demonstrated through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.